Hey, my name is Hendel Leva, and I am the host of the online show Immigration MIC, Moving Immigration Conversations. Every week, I put on my Beats headphones and create original interviews for everyone to enjoy. It's a great opportunity for young people, directly or indirectly affected by today's immigration policies, to have their voice heard in the conversation. Visit www.thehendelmediaproject.com to watch all the interviews and learn how you can get involved. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another edition of Immigration MIC, where we move immigration conversations. And today I have with me Janine Joseph. She is the author of Driving Without a License. Um, on her bio, she says here that she is formally undocumented. Um, she's a professor at Oklahoma State and a former Soros Fellow. Now, that is a pretty big resume of accomplishments, Janine. <laughs> um, but first, you know, uh, before we get into our conversation, would love for you know to give you the opportunity to introduce yourself to our audience. Um, who is Janine? Who are we speaking to today? <laughs> this is a big question. <laughs> um, so I'm Janine. Um, I do all kinds of things, as you mentioned. Um, uh, drawing from my bio, I currently teach at Oklahoma State University. Um, I also uh, had the strange luck. Um, to to write librettos for the Houston Grand Opera's uh, community initiative HGO Co. Could you just tell me um, what a libretto is? Because I looked on the bio, I had no yeah. idea what that was. <laughs> so a libretto is the text um, that is sung for an opera. So wow. okay. um, two of the pieces that 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 I wrote the text for um, are kind of structured like plays. You know, there are scenes, there are acts, there are different characters, and one of them was a song cycle. So the song cycle, I actually thought, um, was much more closely related to poetry in that, you know, there was this title at the top of them, and then I imagined one, maybe two singers um, going back and forth, and, um, you know, the, I mean, I think across really all, all three of those pieces, the, um, the text looks like poetry on the page in terms mm -hmm. of its lineation. So I definitely drew from my background in creative writing and poetry. Um, what else about me? Non-academic things. I'm someone who has grown up with beagles. Um, oh, they were wow. in the household okay. <laughs> before my brothers or I were born. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I currently have a beagle, and he has a very literary name. Um, What's the name? The, the <laughs> Bartleby. So he's named okay. after uh, Bartleby the Scrivener um, from the Herman, Mel uh, Herman Melville short story, Bartleby the Scrivener. I'm pretty sure if I heard of it, it must have been some time uh, <laughs> as an undergrad, as an English major, but I have no recollection. <laughs> yes, but yeah. Yes, yes. All you have to know is that he um, repeats, I would prefer not to when asked to do things. And I thought that that was such a perfect um, response for a beagle because yes. you, you, you would say something like, get out of the trash. And their response is pretty much, I would prefer not to. That's, that's accurate. That's accurate. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah so uh you know i did read that you are originally from the philippines is that correct and there is, is some, there's something to do with uh, your background and politics in the philippines mm -hmm. would love for you to expand on that um so i was born in the philippines and i lived in the philippines um up until about a month shy of my ninth birthday mm -hmm. um and even though i grew up there, uh, or I only lived there up until the age of eight, right before I turned nine. Um, I have a lot of memories 
um, from my childhood in the Philippines. And I think it's largely because um, I was a child star. (laughs) So I started working at the age of three. um, Mm. And like the first thing that I did my first gig was I was the face of Kraft Cheddar Cheese. Um, And and then, you know, then it was a series of uh, commercials and various I, this is always strange when I'm talking about this stuff because I didn't realize uh, until graduate school that mm-hmm. I had had such a, um, I guess, unconventional childhood and unconventional upbringing. I just assumed that everybody uh, walked on runways and right. uh, <laughs> appeared on TV. Mm-hmm. Um, but outside of that stuff, um, and I don't know if this is what you're referring to in terms of uh, political background and just my... Um, I guess my my need, uh, and I don't know if it's just built into my DNA. I'm not mm-hmm. entirely sure, but um, my my father was part of the People Power uh, Revolution in the Philippines. Mm-hmm. Um, he ended up working for Cory Aquino, who was our president after we ousted our dictator. Mm-hmm. Um, for Marcos, most people know Imelda Marcos because of her shoes. Okay. Um, and I, he never really planned to have any kind of, um, uh, you know, political experience, my dad. He, I don't necessarily think that he thought of himself as, you know, someone who would take to the streets. But mm-hmm. um, it, it, it hit him quite personally because he was studying in the U.S., actually. Um, he was going to college in the U.S. And the way the school system worked and the way that his visa worked, um, he couldn't be in the country between these semesters when he was transferring schools. And so there was like this gap. And so he had to return home to the Philippines um, and then prepare to to come back when the semester started. Mm-hmm. And it was when he went back that uh, Marcus had declared martial law. Mm-hmm. And so that pretty much stopped um, his education and uh and made it, I guess, impossible for him to continue studying uh, to, he wanted to work for NASA. Mm -hmm. And um, so then that just started like all of his activism in the Philippines. So I just want to note that I've I've heard similar stories like you're describing with your father's, um, you know, immigration status within the educational system. That's something that still persists today, right? For many students, like maybe not that exact situation, but somewhere where Mm -hmm. they're in like legal limbo. Is that correct? Yes, yes. And I I know for a lot of students, um, a lot of international students, you know, them being able to to stay in the U.S. has a lot to do with them, um, them actually being matriculated Mm -hmm. and also uh, having an on campus job. Right. Um, And so if if they're not in classes or they don't have a campus job, you know, breaks can be really difficult. Mm -hmm. Yes. Definitely. Um, so you were talking about your father's activism. Um, mm-hmm. You know, if you could expand where that journey takes your family. Um, I mean, by so, let's see. So, I re- I remember vaguely, and I don't know if I remember this because I actually have these memories, or because I heard enough people in my family talk about this. Mm-hmm. But apparently, I used to help. Uh, go pamphleteering all of us would go pamphleteering mm-hmm. um and you know trying to to convince people to uh to vote for um for Corey Aquino mm-hmm. um so I guess that you know just doing those those small acts <laughs> right. um are, are somehow part of 
of maybe who I am today. Like I said, mm-hmm. uh, I, I don't know if the memories are entirely mine or if I've formed what feels like absolutely true memories because everybody else remembers that I was there. Right. Uh, you know, I'm, I must have been really young. Um, I do remember, you know, as a kid uh, that, that he was working for the government and the, that um, that we knew uh, the Aquino family. So, um, so that was our life in the Philippines. Of course, things were very different when we, when we finally immigrated. Um, you know, my dad was no longer working for the government. He went into sales, mm-hmm. um, and our lives were just drastically different. Yeah, I mean, and I no longer was working <laughs> as a child star. Because <laughs> I really worked all the way up until um, all the way up until we immigrated. I actually had a commercial that aired after um, we had settled here in the U.S. So interesting. So your legacy was still there. <laughs> <laughs> I guess <laughs> uh, it's maybe a strange legacy. <laughs> right. So so tell me about this decision um, of your family immigrating. Uh, what was kind of the tipping point? I'm not entirely sure. And I think mm-hmm. I have that in common with a lot of people um, who who share their immigration stories, right? Mm-hmm. If you're a child, your parents aren't necessarily disclosing everything to you. Right. You know, there are decisions that are being made um, without sitting you down as a kid and saying, you know, what do you think about this? Mm-hmm. Um, I do remember at one point I, I was told, you know, um, we're, we're getting ready to to move and um, I knew about the US because we had traveled here. I had relatives uh, who lived here and you know, I visited LA, I mm-hmm. visited Disneyland, right? Mm-hmm. Like Universal Studios, all right. of those things. Um, and I just remember that my parents just said, you know, like start saying goodbye to your classmates. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I pulled out certain and and reserve certain pages in my journal and then i asked my friends to write letters like goodbye letters to right. me and to provide people with their addresses but really there's um there's really little that i know and i understand about um what prompted my family to decide to move mm-hmm. um except that we just did and it happened seemingly overnight mm-hmm. um again i was a kid so it may seem like something that happened overnight to me but I don't know how long it was that my parents had made a decision and started working mm-hmm. um and gathering all of our things and preparing to sell a house um they had to have made really big decisions because when we immigrated we brought our beagles with us <laughs> <laughs> they all came right <laughs> and they you know they prepared to to have the house sold all of that stuff but all I remember is we were told, you know, we're moving, we're going to the States. Hmm. Okay. And, um, so was your situation, situation of, um, overstaying your visa once, um, it was done? Yes. Yes. That's eventually what happened though. Mm. My dad, um, and my mom certainly filed paperwork. Okay. Um, it is my understanding. Um, and I've seen these letters and I have, um, copies of these letters, um, you know, after, my book came out and my, I think my dad finally realized what it was that I was doing with all of my time. When I was, <laughs> <laughs> you know, he gave me some documents that I, that I hadn't had as a way of kind of filling in some of the gaps. I mean, mm. I think I always, always have gaps, um, yeah. in terms of what my, my immigration story looks like, because like I said, um, there were decisions that were made for me. Mm. Um, 
but you know, I can see these letters where my dad is asking, um, uh, um, what were they called? I know that they go through there's before ice. There was like, and, uh, NCIS, I believe. I can't remember what the department was called. Mm-hmm. Um, probably just Homeland Security. But he's asking and he's inquiring about um, our paperwork that had been filed because he received this receipt, you know, saying that we received um, all of your your documents. You know, we received your application. You should expect to hear back from us. Um, and it was like just a couple of months, mm-hmm. which it, like to this day. Uh, is still like surprising to me that we were ever only just a couple of months away because mm-hmm. when I found out I was undocumented in 2001, mm-hmm. the lawyer had told me that they were still working on immigration paperwork from before I immigrated. So mm-hmm. they were still working on immigration paperwork from 1990 and I came in 1991. Um, but my my father and my mother didn't hear back after several months and so about a year goes by and they write to inquire and nothing they they got nothing um they they hired some immigration lawyers some of them ran off with their money um every yeah one of those yeah okay yeah yep yeah (laughs) yeah it just it pisses me off every time i hear it but yeah 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 no it, it absolutely happens um you know, because I save all of these documents, you know, once I realized I was undocumented, I kind of, uh, I started saving all kinds of newspaper articles, really anything that I could, that I could, that felt like could speak to my situation, provide some kind of answer. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I have documents and mm-hmm. letters um, that I received because I had been caught up in one of those scams, you right. know, for, I believe it was, um, you know, this, this lawyer who had said that they were helping families um, try to see if they, you know, were qual- if they qualified for like the diversity, the the lottery mm-hmm. program, which I know that Filipinos don't qualify for because we are one of those few countries um, where applications are not accepted. Um, and you know, I sent money. I did. I did the thing. I sent the money. And then, you know, several years later, I get a letter from the government that says, you know, you've been scammed. Um, These people have been caught. Mm -hmm. Sorry. Uh, There's no way of giving back your money now. Mm -hmm. Um, And because I have this letter, I actually had like looked up the name of the people who had scammed us. And apparently they went to jail for a few years, but they're like now out and have a business. I think in New Jersey. Mm. Yeah. 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 That's, that's always troubling to hear. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So my parents did what they could at that time. Um, and then because it took so long, we ended up overstaying our visas. And, uh, as far as I know, my dad continued trying to work with a lawyer, but by then, because we were, we had overstayed, Mm -hmm. um, things had just become more and more difficult. So you're, and I, mm -hmm. Oh, sorry. Sorry. Go ahead. No, I was going to say, so then your whole family unit uh, we fell as undocumented status. Well, we were we were mixed status family. Mixed status. Okay. Um, and, and that was entirely possible because immigration laws weren't as strict, I mm-hmm. guess, or... Um, and I think that this happens with a lot of families. I, yeah. I, I think I think this has happened with a lot of families, especially before 1994 in California. Um, and so... You know, uh, we all had varying statuses, but um, I was the youngest. Mm. 
-hmm. And so there were things that I was not able to do um, ahead of time. Like I, I couldn't get a driver's license before the laws um, became much more strict. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not to say that older people in my, in my family, um, that they face that because they were able to get things like driver's licenses and mm-hmm. um, different types of social security cards. Um, whereas me, again, because I was the youngest, uh, I came of age uh, much later than everybody else. And then mm-hmm. when it was time for me to do all those things, there were all kinds of barriers mm-hmm. um, in place and all kinds of laws that were being heavily enforced. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I kind of uh, fell through the cracks a little bit. I see. And also, you know, I was going to school, right? Mm-hmm. I think, you know, had I, um, you know, uh, finished up after high school and then maybe worked under the table um, for at a job, uh, things may, you know, so I, some people wouldn't be requiring certain documentation from me, but I wanted to go to school and I wanted to continue going to school and, and to go to school and do college and all of that stuff. You need um, paperwork. Mm-hmm. And so I felt a lot of those uh, those barriers um, probably to greater extent than some people in my family. Mm-hmm. And um, when when your family moved, they I think I read they moved to California. Is that correct? Initially? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, Anything, um, you know, what would you say, how, I guess, how did California treat you growing up? California was really interesting. So, um, you know, we moved to Southern California and um, we already had family there. So most of my dad's family is in the U.S. My mother's side of the family are mostly in the Philippines, um, though I do have a relative on my dad's side uh, who lives in Europe. Mm -hmm. Um, So California you know, had my family. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it was quite nice in that way. And right. when, um, so I had an aunt who was living here and, um, by the time I was immigrating, uh, like it wasn't just my family that was immigrating. It was also like my cousins and mm-hmm. my, my, my grandmother. So we all moved around the same time. We didn't first move to, uh, to Riverside, California right away. Um, because my, they were still, you know, in the process of um, finding a house, buying a house. And so for a time, uh, we lived with my cousins and my aunt and my grandmother in a big house in Moreno right. Valley. Um, and so, you know, it's like we immigrated and we were totally surrounded by by our cousins. Right. By family. So it was kind of nice. <laughs> That's good. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And I think I... Um, I guess at some point I'm going to have to write about this because I've been thinking about it more and more mm-hmm. um, and how much uh, my background in acting, um, I think, made a difference in terms of me assimilating. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so I, I, you know, like I said, I grew up in front of the camera. I was part of like a children's like repertory theater. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the thing about immigrating, especially at that young age, is that I very quickly just started studying um how my peers moved around Mm -hmm. and how they talked. And then I just began imitating them and just holding, right? So so now, I mean, you know, people will ask like, oh, why do you sound like a valley girl? And I was like, well, everybody sounded like a valley girl. That's That's funny. I just started folding, and I remember too. My dad was was not pleased that I was starting to to say things like like 
right, right, of <laughs> and, course. And, and putting that into uh, into my diet and into my um, into like various conversations. Um, but I, I really do think somehow that having that background mm-hmm. and you know studying other characters, I guess, and 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 imitating them, um, I think really helped me. Right. And, and that's a very fundamental part of the immigration experience. You know, you kind of like have to assimilate or adapt to uh, mm-hmm. your surroundings. But I think your background like just kind of expedited that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Even, even I, if... mean, I have no idea. Like, I remember once someone someone pointing out that I had an accent and mm-hmm. I was like, well, of course, because I wasn't born here. Of course, uh-huh. I have another accent. Um, I was also a very like outspoken. Uh, I was a very outspoken kid, and mm-hmm. so um, if I ever felt like there was a, a like, th- it was entirely possible for someone to bully me, I would just be in their face and be like, "What do you have to say to me?" Not gonna lie, <laughs> like, that's pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> and I was always someone who like when um, if I saw someone picking on someone else, mm-hmm. I would just go up to them and then just. Like, why are you doing that? You know, why are you being mean? Why do you have to do this? Uh, why, you, like, why are you this type of a person? Um, which I think helps. Right, right. It, I, mean, <laughs> I was pretty much trying to tell people, no, you can't make fun of me. I've just decided that you cannot make fun of me. It's very interesting, and I do <laughs> want to come back to that a little later on when, um, you know, I'd like to discuss uh, hate crimes happening at college campuses across the nation. So I'd like to bring that back later on. Um, now. Uh, was being undocumented something that you grew up knowing? Was there a certain flashpoint where like it just kind of all hit you? Um, what was your experience? So I didn't really start asking about and thinking about paperwork until um, until it came time to apply for my driver's license. Mm-hmm. Like uh, most people, right? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in California, you can start working at the age of 16. And I started volunteering at the age of 15 because I wanted to make sure I had things on my resume. Mm-hmm. Um, but volunteering is volunteering, right? You right. just show up and say, yeah, I'm willing to, you know, clean the poop out of these like cat cages. And of course, they're going to let you do that for free. Right. Right. No one's going to check your documentation. Um, if you're just showing up and saying like, I'm, I just want to volunteer. Mm-hmm. I like animals. Can you please let me volunteer? Um, but when it came time to, uh, to think about driving when the rest of my friends were thinking about driving, you know, I signed up to do the driver's ed education course. And like, once I was done, I had timed it. I'm someone mm-hmm. who works like on a schedule and sure. I timed it right. Like on this day, this, this many months before I turned 16, this is when I sign up for this course. That way mm-hmm. I have X amount of time to, uh, to complete the, the behind the wheel, uh, hours that you need, um, and then by the time I turn 16, I am ready to take the test and get my driver's license. Mm-hmm. And of course, that was all put on hold. Um, and my dad had said, you know, uh, your paperwork is still in the pipeline. Mm-hmm. So just like, just hold tight. It should be ready soon. I don't know how true that was. Mm-hmm. I don't know if he was just biding his time or if there actually was something in the pipeline or if he was just hoping for the best that something would change. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I turned 16 and all I knew was that I had to keep waiting, that mm-hmm. the paperwork is in the pipeline, just keep waiting, just keep waiting. And then I just kind of stopped asking about it. I just figured when it happens, I will, I'll, I guess I'll be the first one to know. Right. Um, but again, I still just 
it just didn't compute in the same way. I didn't realize that I was supposed to be asking very different types of questions, mm-hmm. right? Because by that point, I'd been living in the States for, for several years. Um, I did. I Now looking back, though, I, I remember at one point, one of my classmates asking me, this was when I was in elementary school, one of my classmates asked me, um, uh, what my citizenship was. And I said, like the U S. Um, but I had no idea what they were asking me. And so I asked my mom when I went home after school and I said, you know, one of my classmates asked me this question. I don't know what that means. So I just answered, you know, the U S and she said, um, I, she said, that's not true at all. You were born in the Philippines, you know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you're a citizen of an entirely different country. And she was explaining to me that citizen, um, doesn't isn't referring to the place where you are currently living, but rather the place of your birth. Right. Um, but again, but these, you know, these are very kinds of like abstract, you know, it was just like learning a new vocabulary word mm-hmm. and understanding how it worked in a particular context in elementary school. Right. Like I never, ever thought that any of those conversations had anything to do with what was to come. Um, and then I didn't really find out that I was undocumented until I started applying to colleges mm-hmm. and had filled my FAFSA. And it was when I got the uh, student aid report um, letter back in the mail uh, when I read very explicitly like a sentence that said that, um, you know, the Social Security Administration did not confirm that you are a U.S. citizen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I pretty much. I got to see, right, the amount of um, scholarships and federal aid that I would have gotten um, zeroed out on a piece of paper, Mm -hmm. you know, that said, like, unless you can provide um, additional paperwork, you know, you're not going to get anything. And I would have qualified for financial aid because of our um, household income at that time. Mm -hmm. So it was a pretty devastating letter to get. And I remember, um, you know, going and talking to my eldest brother and my dad afterwards because they were upstairs chatting about something. And I, I walked up with the letter in my hands and I said, like, what does this mean? Um, and it was a real mix of mix of responses because mm-hmm. my my brother uh, my brother uh, said, why did you fill that out? Right. Like already, like why? (laughs) Yes. And, you know, and I found out later on that, um, you know, that the reason why he had to take a break from college was because he was paying out of state tuition Mm -hmm. and it was coming increasingly um, difficult for him to continue going to college while trying to also work because he, you know, um, paying out of state tuition is really, really expensive for a school, even if you live in that state. Um, so he was already experiencing some things, but we didn't talk about it, right? Mm-hmm. All of this stuff was hush-hush uh, was in the family. Right. Um, and then I guess maybe I'm the one who's <laughs> talking about it now. Right, right. <laughs> now, um... So uh, I think uh, so. So during this time, you're about to graduate high school, correct? Mm-hmm. And you're headed to college. What What were you initially looking to do? And that has has that always been your career path? So I always knew that 
I would write in some capacity. Um, when I was applying to college, I, I think I put down English and business. I wanted mm -hmm. to double major. Okay. Um, I thought maybe, right, like I knew I wanted to, to be an English major, but then I thought it would be good to, to have, I don't know, like business classes under my belt as sure. well. I figured if I wanted to start something, I should know how. Mm -hmm. <laughs> totally. And so that, that's you know, I applied to schools with that major. Um, there were also a few schools that I applied to, um, hoping that maybe I would go to art school. Mm -hmm. uh, it was it was kind of a real mix. Um, you know, at that time in high school during my senior year, I was uh, well, well, both like, well, actually, like through all the years, I was always mm -hmm. writing um, and I was painting quite a bit. Mm -hmm. uh, I didn't know what would happen after realizing that I couldn't go to college. I just knew that I did want to go to school. And so I enrolled in the local community college and it was just, um, you know, doing my gen ed stuff. But if I had, I would say that, you know, knowing that I was going to be an English major, um, and knowing that I wanted to write, I was still maybe a little bit directionless in terms of what it was that I wanted to write about. Mm -hmm. Um, but certainly, uh, after finding out I was undocumented, I was mm. like, well, I have a very specific story I want to tell now. Right, right. And and then just started beginning the the work that would become driving without a license. I mm. sat down and thought, I'm gonna write a novel, right? Because stories are told in novels. I didn't I didn't realize that you could tell stories in poems too. Sure. <laughs> but of course, right, I only I only knew um what I'd learned in high school. Mm -hmm. And so um the novel was terrible. <laughs> Apparently, it's really difficult to write a novel mm -hmm. if you're constantly trying to keep secrets and not trying right. to reveal anything. It's like um, half the sentence and then like half the sentence yep. is invisible. <laughs> yes, yeah. <laughs> and like every day I would get up and I would write and I started noticing that my, the more chapters I wrote, the smaller the chapters were getting. And then slowly mm. I had written like a paragraph, I think, for one chapter. And I was like, hmm. This isn't working. I need to go back to the thing that um, that I was writing before I decided, oh, I'm going to write a novel. And mm -hmm. so I, I returned to my first love, which was poetry. Okay. Um, and it really wasn't until um, I attended this uh, writing retreat in Idlewild, California, mm -hmm. uh, over a, a weekend that... Um, that I realized like what a book of poems could do. So I, I sat in on a panel with um, the poet Cecilia Wolock, um, Natasha Trethaway, who mm. you know became our poet laureate. Um, and I believe there there may be there might have been an, an, maybe another two poets, but I remember going home with uh, Cecilia Wolock's and Natasha Trethaway's books, and they were talking about the long poem or. Um, you know, a book of poems where all of the poems are talking to each other, right? That's so thinking about like a project book. Mm -hmm. um, and it, I, up until that point, I didn't think it was entirely possible to to be focused on one specific thing across multiple poems. And then, you know, sitting on that panel, I had this breakthrough. I was like, this is how I tell it, right? right? So there doesn't necessarily have to be one uh, story that's being told in um, like a linear um, fashion in a chronological order because my immigration story does not happen in a neat line. Mm -hmm. uh, 
but rather I was able to tell, you know, bits and pieces of, uh, of, of my own story by fracturing it, right? By just telling bits and pieces at the time mm-hmm. and letting all of those voices uh, speak to a much larger story instead of forcing one of them to have to tell the whole story. You know, what's interesting is uh, as I'm hearing you speak, I feel like I should be paying you for, for what you're teaching us here. <laughs> <laughs> like, it, like, like I, I feel like you're a, a legit professor, like teaching us like right now on this podcast so thank you for that so funny i feel like i'm kind of bumbling you know it's very different to have a to have a clear lesson plan uh, ahead of time because then you know then then i like step into the role of teacher and i go in there and i have everything set you know but here it's like you're giving me questions and i'm thinking them through as i'm answering i mean them. you know that's that's what it's all about that's that's you know the, the fluid conversations we have here um now uh, i did read that you were able to adjust your status at some point how did that come mm-hmm. about very, a very, very long, complicated process. One that I actually don't talk about very much sure. um, because it involves other people. And there was a time I mean, where feel free to share as much or as little as you want. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I will say that that my uh, my process was just as complicated and just as difficult mm-hmm. as I think a lot of people's mm-hmm. uh, processes um, are like. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the kind it's the kind of story where on some days there are good guys and some days there are bad guys. Mm, um, yeah, it, w- it was long and it was very, very complicated <laughs> is, is what I'll stick to. Sure. Of course. Um, yeah. And, you know, for example, you know, I will say that within my parents' immigration story, my father was undocumented from Guatemala, uh, traveled to the U S many times. Um, my mom was already a citizen. Mm-hmm. Um, the way she became a citizen, it's kind of like how you how we were just talking. You could say half the sentence, but you can't say half the other sentence. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, my parents married later on, and she became a citizen. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so so I know what you're talking about. You know, yeah, exactly. It's, it's, and I think you know every person uh, in my family too. We all have very very different um, mm-hmm. immigration stories. Um, our stories are drastically different from each other. And um, we all filled out very different forms. Um, it's, you know, unfortunately, it's it's just long and it's complicated. And most days it's just sad. Um, you know, people often will like ask me because I, you know, I'll talk about my dad quite a bit, mm-hmm. um, you know, but my mom lives in the Philippines and my mom mm-hmm. was unable to um, return to the U.S., for mm-hmm. several years. I mean, I don't even know if um, if a visa would still be granted her because when she returned to the Philippines to be with her family, um, you know, she had overstayed. Mm-hmm. Right, right. And it's very, very different if you overstayed if you're trying to come back. Right, of course. Um, now, did you uh, publish your your um, your book um, before you got to academia, or was it kind of like in a transition period? In your career um so so the book by the time i finished it, it was part of my dissertation okay um though it looked very different at the dissertation stage i remember after i successfully defended the dissertation um one of my mentors pulled me aside and said okay what do you think about meeting for coffee next week and we can turn we can talk about turning how to turn a dissertation into a book that's awesome and yeah, <laughs> I was actually very thankful for it because, you know, you, I finished a dissertation. I was like, oh, I'm done. Mm-hmm. 
<laughs> the book is done. Um, but, you know, in talking with him, he was he was like, OK, there are certain poems in here that make sense for the argument that you're trying to make as part of your dissertation. But they're not necessarily um, needed for the book as a whole. So take all of these poems out right. or and like move these things around or, um, you know, after. Uh, discussing, um, you know, a change in sections during the dissertation. Now you do that for the book and you start mm. sending things out from there. Um, the the book won the uh, 2014 uh, Kundiman Poetry Prize. And awesome. by that by that point, I was already teaching um, at my first job, which is a which was at a university in um, Ogden, Utah. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I, I got the announcement um about the book winning that prize and that it was going to get published when I was already teaching. But the book officially came out between um, when I was leaving um, the, that first university and when I was starting at Oklahoma State University. So um, it was actually a really complicated process because I have, you know, like a bio in the back of the book mm -hmm. and I didn't know what school affiliation <laughs> to put <laughs> And I was like, well, you know what? This is the book that, that is just going to um, stand out on its own. It's not mm -hmm. going to be attached to anything. And I kind of like that. So. Sure. <laughs> now, uh, let me ask you, um, what do you, if, if you have two poems uh, within the book that you think are the most impactful or relevant to experiences that people are going through today, uh, can you talk a little bit about one or two of those poems? Um. That's an actually that's actually a really interesting question because it's a question of what I think is maybe important mm -hmm. versus um, you know poems that that others have um, approached me about. Sure. And I will say that there is a poem in here called "Between Joan the Butterfly," and it's a poem that is in multiple sections and it borrows a lot of language about immigration um, from newspapers and I also borrow language from various. Uh, form immigration forms that I had to fill out. Um, it was a poem that took me uh, about seven years to write. Wow. If I go backwards on, on drafts <laughs> far enough. Um, I mean, it was certainly a poem that I think I was trying to write for a very long time. Mm -hmm. And because I was writing a lot of this book while still going to school, you know, sometimes I would attempt um, to write about something in a poem, but the poem would fail, right? Like it just wouldn't be a very good poem. Mm -hmm. But then I would get smarter, you know, as the semester went along. Sure. And then I would slowly le learn, okay, like maybe this is how I do it. And so I would kind of attempt it. So it wasn't that I was writing the same poem over and over and over again. I was trying to reach something over and over and over again. Mm. And it really wasn't until... Um, uh, I had found this, I had picked up this book, I attended um, uh, this poetry festival called Split This Rock, mm -hmm. and um, I heard about the poet Martha Collins, and she was reading um, excerpts from her book called Blue Front, and I remember being really, I thought, you know, after the reading, like, oh, I want to buy that book, it sounds really interesting, so I bought it, and then because I move around a lot because of academia right moving mm -hmm. from school to school the, the book got lost in in one of my boxes um and then at some point when I was living in Houston I was like unpacking all of these books and realizing how many of them I I had bought many years ago and haven't had a chance to read because they've been living in boxes for so long um and then one day I just like I just remembered this book right 
and I pulled it off the shelf. I opened it, read about like the first five words. I closed the book and mm. I, I thought to myself, I know how this poem needs to oh, be wow. written. Okay. Like I, I just know it. And I just sat down and just started typing and typing and typing. Um, and it's a, it's a poem that people will come up to me um, to talk about. Uh, you know, they're, they're always full of questions. Actually, just last week, um, a student in a high school um, in Oklahoma mm -hmm. uh, sent me this email because he was um, preparing for like his debate and communications class. Mm -hmm. And they, they do this performance and he decided that he wanted to focus on um, works about immigration as mm -hmm. part of his presentation. And so he was memorizing a bunch of poems because he had to fill like a set amount of time. I guess in this time, they just have to keep talking about one particular subject. Sure. And so many of them will, will draw from like uh, works of literature. They'll memorize um uh, like scenes from movies, right? Like anything that fits under like the theme that they've decided for themselves. And he, he wrote to ask about that particular poem. Mm -hmm. And, um, and he, he wrote a little bit about, uh, you know, how he felt it resonated, um, for him as this student in the middle of Oklahoma, this high school student in the middle of Oklahoma. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I, when you're sitting down and you're writing and, and you're just kind of by yourself, you don't really think about how other people are going to, um, to respond to your work. So right. it's, it's just kind of been a surprise, um, especially, you know, because that, that poem took me so long to write. Sure. And, uh, what's the title of the poem? <laughs> just people. It's called between Joe and the butterfly. And it's a poem that, um, that, that it has a number of different sections. Um, and it borrows a lot of language, um, from pretty much all of these stories that I've been reading about growing up, um, that were always talking about like the undocumented immigration problem. Right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, growing up in Southern California, everything was really focused on the U S Mexico border. Mm -hmm. Um, and so a lot of that, um, reading about all of that, uh, anytime, I mean, I didn't really talk to people about being undocumented, but anytime, you know, I mentioned anything or I brought in a poem to workshop that was inching in the direction of talking about my experience. Um, you know, when people would give me feedback and give me, um, you know, constructive criticism, mm -hmm. they would they would say things like, we're all the uh, we're all the cacti. Where are the coyotes and where's right. your migra? Right? And I was just like, mm, that's not really my experience. Right. You course. know, like like. And, and it was the same thing reading all of these different newspapers, you know, like the and, and as we see it right now, right? Mm -hmm. Like the national dialogue, it has to do with the U.S.-Mexico border as mm -hmm. if that is the only place um, where people who um, in various ways are struggling with immigration like come from, right? Like as if there's only one place where immigrants mm -hmm. can come. Um, so it was a poem that that's just been very dear to my heart. Um, because I absorbed all of that language and the poem in some ways trying to like wrestle with like what happens when these stories about all of these other people mm -hmm. um, in similar or dissimilar situations, what happens when you internalize all of this language, right? What mm -hmm. happens to one's identity? Like how do you, how do you, um, how do you construct an identity if at all times other people are telling you, no, you are this other thing.
right? And I have language mm-hmm. to describe who you are, like what happens. Um, so I definitely want to, yeah, go ahead. No, no, no. And, and then just to, because I, I, I talked so long about <laughs> that one particular poem, I would say maybe the other one uh, that I just have a whole lot of fun reading always at readings is um, the this poem called more milk, more milk makes it better. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it's a poem that is about, uh, being a, a child star. And the title actually comes from a craft cheddar cheese jingle from the 1980s, the mm-hmm. one that, that I was in. Um, and it was a poem that, that I, that I wrote that, um, that really ran away from me the moment mm-hmm. I started writing it. Like I sat down and I was thinking quite a bit about this, this, um, you know, this narrative of, um, you know, a parent in another country has a like maybe a white collar job, right? And then they immigrate to the states and they immediately like go into like service work, right? Because there are things that don't um, that don't translate from one country to another, and often those things have to do. They're usually like diplomas, right? Like education somehow doesn't translate, and um, and so there's all this discussion about those kinds of struggles. And I, when I was realizing that I had um, a very unconventional childhood, I kind of chuckled to myself. Uh, and I was thinking like, oh, if I stay in the Philippines, maybe I'd be a movie star at this point. I wouldn't be studying literature, writing right. films. And so it was always this joke that I had. Um, and so then, uh, you know, sitting down thinking I was going to write a poem about like parents um, suddenly and, and, and giving up like career suddenly became this, like this poem about like guzzling, uh, milk at the very end of it. It was just mm. like the poem just decided for me what it wanted to be about and just ran with it. Um, and so I kind of like that as a balance because of course, like one took many years for me to right. kind of nail down. And this other one that I had ideas for was just like, no, we don't like your idea. Totally. We're going to do this instead. And, you know, and it will be this poem that you have so much fun reading at uh, at different events. <laughs> well, I, I would love to, um, you know, perhaps get a sample of, you know, those, you know, those two poems. So I could put, you know, in the description of the video and, and people could uh, take a look at. Oh, OK. <laughs> um, and you mean like reading out loud or like links to. Oh, like to links, the... links. Yeah. OK, OK, OK. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, now, uh a couple of questions. Um, what do you think the reception has been overall? And how does it tie to um, this program that I saw that you were working on to um, have more folks who are undocumented um, present their own poetry? So the first question, are you asking about the reception of the book? Yeah, the reception of the book. Um, you know, have there been people uh, in a similar situation that have, you know, opened up to you uh, specifically, uh, etc.? So I, I've been incredibly, incredibly fortunate, I think, um, with the book coming out. Um, I mean, it, it, the book's release has affected my life in a number of ways. Um, the first and I think most obvious way is that once I realized the book, and, and this is something I think that, that comes up quite a bit um, with my work with Poets, is um, that, that people with... Um, these kinds of like haunted immigration like backgrounds, um, you know, our work appearing in the world um, brings about, a, I think, a different type of anxiety. So mm. like when the book was uh, was picked up, I was, of course, very excited. And then there was this moment where I kind of froze and thought, oh, no, 
like now all of the poems will be out in the world. Like it's one right. thing to to come to class and get feedback on one poem at a time. And you know, the workshop rule is always that the work must speak for the for itself, right? Mm-hmm. So even when a work is being discussed, you the author are often silent during that time. So other people are talking about the work and you don't really have to fill in anything else, right? You you can ask a few follow-up questions, but for the most part, you know, uh, you're not there speaking for the piece. You're not there to elaborate or explain. Um, And so that was, you know, like, even though I'd been working on these poems, they were always kind of in these like isolated environments where no one could could turn to me and ask me, are you writing about your life? Right. Right? And and at no point was I under the the obligation, under any kind of obligation to say, like, this is based on my life. I'm trying to Mm -hmm. write about this. I just figured, like, well, there's really no point because it's not like, um, I'm going to spend all of this time explaining this, like filling out what it's like to fill out this one particular form. Um, but then the book got picked up mm-hmm. and then I was like, Oh no, all of the poems will be out there and they're going to be talking to each other and they're all going to be saying the same thing. They're all going to be sharing this one very specific story. Right. Um, and I became really afraid. I froze up. Um, and, uh, you know, I talked to, you know, other close friends who maybe wrote about um, not necessarily immigration, but other types of um, uncomfortable subjects that maybe they were worried about their, their family, you know, like picking up and reading this book, mm-hmm. um, you know, to, to kind of get some advice. And then um, through the Soros Fellowship, there was this email or through the Soros Foundation, there was this email mm-hmm. that was sent to all of the fellows saying that, um you know, they got word that Zocalo Public Square and the Smithsonian were partnering for this project, uh, what it means to be American. And so, you know, they encouraged like Soros Fellows to to pitch ideas. It was just like, well, if the Soros Fellowship is for new Americans, maybe some of you out there will want to write something for this, like what it mm-hmm. means to be American project. And I jumped at the opportunity. I was totally terrified to jump at the opportunity, but I figured that um, that I needed in some way to be able to um, not necessarily control the narrative, but mm-hmm. to have some agency in the narrative that I was soon to be presenting to the world. Right, right. Um, I say world, not to, I mean, I... Right. Like I have it's not like I imagined that like this book was going to be like a New York Times bestseller, sure. you know, but of course anything feels big. Right. Uh-huh. Especially like, you know, this collection of poems that I've been working on for a long time. I just knew it was going to be out there. Right. Um, in some capacity. So I'm not I'm using world lightly. Um, I mean, use but... whatever you want. <laughs> <laughs> But then I wrote this essay and I wrote this essay about uh, the or the idea I had pitched was, um, you know, like driving and driving without a license. Right. Mm -hmm. And what that was like. And um, it was a really, really difficult essay to write. Um, And luckily, the the editors at um, the editors who are working with me, um, you know, would take the time to like talk to me outside of the, the drafts that I'd been sending them to get a sense of like, okay, like I know that there's something that you're not telling us here. Mm-hmm. Um, like, can we maybe like talk it through so that we can give you some suggestions on like how you might craft that to, to fill in some of these gaps. Um, 
so I had really wonderful editors to work with. Um, right. and, and then the essay came out and I, you know, I shared it on social media, other people were sharing it. And I don't think people realized at that, at that point that, um, that this was like the first time I was even talking about it. So I had a few people who had contacted me um, afterwards, like friends, you know, people who had known me like all my life. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I had a friend from elementary school, actually one of my very first like best friends, sure. like growing up in this country who messaged me on Facebook and was like, how did I not know this about right. you? Like, what? Mm-hmm. <laughs> how is this even possible? Um, and it was this really like touching moment because I like in terms of like where we fall on on the political spectrum, like we are we are on, on opposite mm, sides. Interesting. Um, and so it was really like at this point, it was just like she contacted me because I was her best friend growing up, and she just found out this thing that probably uh, goes against things that she believes in, you know. Right. Um, and it just cut right through that, and That's you know awesome. she was just like, "How is it possible?" Like. I like I never like once thought right, and so we kind of had to talk through this. Well, of course, right? Sure. You, we don't all look the same, <laughs> right? All of the stories are different, mm-hmm. right? There's no like one specific type of immigrant. There's no one specific type of undocumented immigrant. Right. Um, but you know, like I I wrote that essay as a way of preparing the book for the world, and also really preparing myself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> for for the release of the book in the world so like the story was out there um and then the book came out and um i've been really lucky you know like people will contact me um, and invite me to come and talk to their various student groups i will say that i think because of the subject matter of this book um i get maybe different types of invites than if the than than even some of my peers who are doing poetry readings Mm -hmm. um you know, like I'll get um, invites from even community colleges because they know that I was someone who went to community college right. um, and still like went all the way through. I got my Ph.D., um, you know, am now teaching at a university. Um, but, you know, schools with um, with uh, with various like student groups that um, that are very vocal about immigration or mm-hmm. that have students who are very much out about their undocumented status, at least mm-hmm. on campus, you know, I'll get invited to, to chat with those students. That's great. Um, it's very different than, you know, like landing a reading at a, um, at a university that has like a really established, like and prestigious writing program. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I get different types of questions, you know, like one time I did this reading and, um, the student asked this question and it was, it, it had nothing to do with the writing. It was just like, how fast did you drive to not get pulled over? Right, right. It was just like, because I'm still trying to figure out how fast I need to drive to not get, right? It was, it was like, right, yeah, nothing to do with it. Yeah. He was just like, whatever it is that you're reading up there, I feel you. Let's talk. <laughs> like, let's get real practical. It's like that's here, the right? last like, thing. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Um. You know, and like, pretty much every reading that I've done, someone will come up and talk to me about either their own experience mm-hmm. or the experience of um of a loved one. Yeah. And and I'm really lucky, you know, that people still have an interest in the book, because uh, that's not always the case. Um. Mm-hmm. You know, the book is now a year and some 
maybe a year and a half. In May, it will be two years old. Sure. Um, and I mean, it's not like uh, people are like banging down my door, but you know, like it's still nice that that I'll get emails from students who are just like, we're reading your book in class. Like, do you have a moment to answer a few questions? Or, you know, someone will send me an email that, that I will say like, oh, I'm like in this particular state that you've never been to before, mm -hmm. but I picked up a copy of your book. Would you like to come visit our campus? Um, I definitely did not expect that. <laughs> that's great. No, that's great though. And um... I didn't know going to happen. I mean, the literary landscape looks very different now. Like now I know a number of poets who have agents and that was always like unheard of uh, when I was um, when I was working on my degree and thinking about like putting a book out in the world. But, um, you know, like it I, I've been getting readings and I've been getting invites and I feel really, really fortunate. Um, and even more so when I get you know, pointed questions about immigration and people who are interested um, in hearing me talk a little bit about that. Sure. And um, so what would be the connection between that work and um, the program you were just working on uh, a couple of months ago? So are you talking about the work with Undocu Poets? Yes, correct. So that is actually ongoing. So mm. um, I was invited to be part of Undocu Poets. So um, it's you know, the, the Undocu Poets campaign started in 2015 and um, three poets, um, Javier Zamora, uh, Marcelo Hernandez Castillo and Christopher uh, Loma or no, Christopher Loma uh, Soto. Um, the three of them got together and I think they knew each other because of their MFA programs, but mm -hmm. they were somehow in the same circle. And then they, they realized when looking at a number of first book contests, which again, um, you know, this is a time before we now have poets who have um, agents and publicists. Mm -hmm. um, they were, you know, the chances of you publishing your first book was usually through a contest. Um, when they were looking at the the guidelines and the restrictions of these contests, like they realized that they were incredibly outdated and discriminatory mm, um, because they were so outdated, right? So, um, you know, a contest could no longer say um, that you must be a U.S. citizen mm -hmm. or a permanent resident to even submit your manuscript for consideration because there's this monetary prize. And in order to give this monetary prize, you would need like a social security number or a tax identification number, right? Like that's very dated, right? right? Because now like this is right. So this is 2015. This is after like DACA, mm -hmm. right? So to say that you don't have these things and therefore can't submit your work in the event that you win um, they were completely outdated. And so the three of them um, created this petition that uh, that asked that these major, the major, major contests, and I know that we haven't been able to reach all of them yet, but in terms of like the, the big, big ones, mm -hmm. the ones that are always at the top of, of poets' lists when they're sending things out to, you know, they asked them to update their, their guidelines and their requirements. Um, when uh, Christopher Soto was stepping down, uh, they asked me to um, to consider maybe stepping in as part of the project when it moved on to the fellowship phase. And mm -hmm. so Marcelo, Javier, and I, um, I don't even know what, what we call us. I think on, on the last grant, I wrote that we were like the steering committee. Sure. I mean, that's, that's the term that came to my mind, so... <laughs> 
um, you know, like we were working together when it moved to the fellowship phase, um, and the fellowship phase, um, was made possible through a grant from Amazon literary partnership. Um, the sibling rivalry press foundation hosts the undocupoets fellowship. Um, and now we're in our second year. We're actually, um, so Javier Zamora is now no longer part of the steering committee because Mm -hmm. his book was just released and he needed the time to, to, um, you know, do readings and, and to promote the book. So, um, so now it's Marcelo, myself, and then uh, Esther Lynn, who was one of the inaugural um, UndocuPoets fellows. We're now the ones who are steering the uh, the 2018 um, fellowship. We're actually currently in the process of uh, reading through all of our submissions mm-hmm. and um, are hoping to make a decision about who our two fellows are um, for 2018 in, in the next couple of weeks hopefully within a month we'll have everything read and decided on and we'll get to make a big announcement cool no that that sounds awesome i'm glad that this space exists and is being created and is being facilitated um because i have interviewed a couple of uh people on this podcast who are poets themselves have tps have daca um Mm -hmm. you know and just write this amazing poetry so i'm glad there's this space for them to submit to and we were actually we were not necessarily worried, but we were really unsure of what would happen with the fellowship this year, right? Mm-hmm. Because our inaugural fellows, and this is something that we don't always, um, I, I think that a lot of places don't really have to think about is that when we had selected our five fellows for the 2017 fellowship, you know, we um, we contacted the fellows individually. So we divided up the names and the phone numbers and, you know, gave everybody a phone call and chatted with them. And then we... Um, we, we all emailed each other, like we started this email thread to ask the question of how do you want to be represented mm-hmm. when, we, when we make the announcement, right? Because we are well aware that um, of, of the type of fellowship that we are and we want to make sure that if you do not feel comfortable putting your photo or your name right. on a website that is saying undocumented fellowship, mm-hmm. you know, that we want to be able to respect that. Um, you know, that's not necessarily um, something that other contests or presses have to really like, or the, the winners necessarily have to think about. Not to say that the, that's true across the board. I'm mm-hmm. sure, you know, someone has written some subject matter that that makes them nervous um, when putting it out in the world. But, you know, we had to ask them, like, do you want your name released? We are happy to figure out an alternative if you don't want your picture and your name up there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like we understand that we understand the anxieties that um, that winning this 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 particular fellowship might might cause because right? Like we all are coming from entirely different circumstances. Mm-hmm. And, um, there was this like, this like shared experience, it seemed like, you know, and like, as a group, we got to talk through, um, what it would mean to, to put the names up, what it would mean to put the pictures up. The fellows got to talk to each other. Um, and even, you know, say like why it felt important for them to, um, to out themselves in this way. Sure. Um, it was this really, really like moving um, conversation and done entirely by email. Mm-hmm. Um, most of the work that I did with UndocuPoets and, and still continue to do happens by email. There was actually a conference that I went to uh, last year um, where I got to meet Marcelo for the first time. Hey, that's awesome. And, and we met each other because someone was doing a podcast, right? So mm-hmm. uh, Marcelo 
um, Javier and I um, were doing this podcast called Commonplace Podcast. And because we got together just for that podcast, I mean, like I knew Javier, um, but Marcelo and I just looked at each other and said, right. like, this is the first time that we're meeting. <laughs> and we've been like corresponding about like poets for right. it, it must been like a year a year and a half by that point but it, mm. that was the first that we got a chance to meet so it's this really kind of like wonderful space that you know that there are these things that are happening that's by awesome. email we're coming together uh coming together by email <laughs> that's so awesome to hear i'm really happy to hear that and i'm sure it's having positive benefits for the people that you're working with um yeah, yeah, yeah. so so we're rounding out uh kind of like the last leg of the interview here um you know, definitely would love to hear about your thoughts about the current immigration conversation. And uh, then we'll get into a little bit about uh, hate crimes and then uh, we'll wrap up. Um, so, Janine, you know, given everything you've seen uh, prior to the 2016 election to where we are now, where do you think we are in the immigration conversation? So this is a big question that you saved for the very end. <laughs> I have I have a lot of different thoughts. Go ahead. Um, uh, one actually has to do with the Andaki Poets Fellowship. You know, like we were really unsure of how many submissions we would get this year mm-hmm. because of um, how heated the the discussions are. And um, we weren't sure, you know, if people would feel um, in danger in any way by, by submitting to this fellowship. Exactly. But mm-hmm. but our submissions more than doubled this year. And let me, let me just say, it's interesting because I, I've been hosting this podcast for about two years now. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I thought maybe after the election, you know, I'd have a drop in the amount of people who would want to participate. But mm-hmm. it's remained the same. People still yeah. reach out to me to be a part of things. And so, I mean, for that reason and for for other reasons, I, I, try, I really try to remain hopeful. Um Maybe it's a, a survival strategy, right? Because many, many years ago, I think things would have been very different for me had I not just um, uh, relied on my fallback, which was to just start working, right? Mm-hmm. To, to make a plan, to make a to-do list, to come up with a time, right? That I mentioned before that right, I'm someone who works on a schedule, <laughs> right? And it was like, you know, I had been dealt a very devastating blow when I found out I was undocumented. Um, you know, I graduated a high school valedictorian and I got accepted to all of my colleges and then I oh, learned I couldn't go to college. And so I was like, well, and I made a list of things that I could do without, you know, like if the, if, if like worst case scenario happened and then I just got straight to work and I just figured, you know, like. I still would need to be able to do something that felt like I was doing something fulfilling for my life outside of the immigration mm-hmm. um, conversation. Like I just knew that I wanted to work and keep working regardless of whether or not, um, you know, other someone else was there to witness what it was that I was doing. Mm-hmm. So I do try to remain hopeful. Um, I will say that um, I know that a lot of, for a lot of people, um, uh, especially, you know, people who, aren't actually directly affected by um, by these laws, right? By this national conversation, you know, like people who are very much learning about, who are learning about immigration right now, you right. know, as we're mm-hmm. speaking, they're learning about immigration. Um, and, you know, they often feel devastated. Like I always see these like social media posts, um, you know, where someone is just like, you know, I've been reading a lot about these raids and, you know, like, what can we do? We are like, we are failing all, you know, it's just like every, like, it's just so mm-hmm. full of devastation. Um, 
and maybe again because I, I tried to 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 have some joy in my life and I try to um, to have some hope. You know, I remember what it was like to find out um, in in 2001. I remember I remember very very clearly what it was like to find out that I was undocumented and how no one around me, save for the newspapers that that were like my friends every single day. Mm. You know, I spent a considerable amount of time like in the mornings with them before I went to school or went to work. Um, no one else around me was equipped with the vocabulary to even begin talking about this. Right. Um, and now everybody wants to talk about it. Mm -hmm. You know, like people are asking me very like direct questions about immigration. Um, you know, I will watch people get into arguments like, when one of them hears like a friend say like illegal immigrants, right? Mm -hmm. Someone will jump in and say like, you know, like that is an outdated term. It is also very offensive. It's derogatory. And I'm just like sitting back and watching the show right. just completely, completely amazed. Mm -hmm. um, that, that the way, I mean, it's unfortunate how it's being brought um, to our attention now, mm -hmm. undoubtedly. But I think it, uh, you know, I believe in the power of language and I believe in the power of words. And I believe that there is some power in having a name for things and a name that other and like, you know, like words for things that other people recognize and are using and are becoming part of like daily conversation. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, progress is slow, right? Right. Um, but, you know, I can I can like pinpoint like a moment in my life and, and, and think there was no one around me who I could talk to about this stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, like 2001 was the very first time that like an iteration of the Dream Act Correct. failed to pass. Mm -hmm. Right. And I remember like scouring through the newspaper to see whether or not I can go to college or not. Right. Mm -hmm. So I graduated high school in 2001. Like that Dream Act would have meant something for me back then. Um and I had no, like, no one else was looking for that information in a newspaper, mm -hmm. right? Like, no one else wanted to talk about it or didn't know that it was a thing to talk about. Right. Um, so for me, things have changed mm -hmm. very slowly. But, I mean, we have to, there has to be some progress. Um, that's not to say that I'm not just absolutely terrified <laughs> of what's to come. Right. Um, I, d I just saw <laughs> that the... Uh, that the, the bill just failed in the Senate right now. Yep. Um, that was today. But I have very, but I have very strong opinions about that because I'm someone who believes a in a clean dream act, right? Okay. Nothing that's attached to the wall. Because again, I mean, you're speaking to someone who was born in the Philippines, who who came to this U.S. like by plane, mm -hmm. right? Like the fact that there is still this fixation on the border, as if that's going to solve anything, mm -hmm. um, right? Like it's just. Like, how do you think that's going to solve everything if you're not looking at, like, U.S. occupation in of different course, countries? That's, that's the big and, thing, like, U.S. occupation, <laughs> yep. <laughs> right? It's so much bigger than this, like, symbolic wall. Mm -hmm. um, it's so much bigger than that, right? Like, I want a clean Dream Act, but more than a clean Dream Act, like, I want things that will also protect people who, who are not protected by a clean Dream Act, right? right? Like, the Dream Act is very, very specific. Mm -hmm. And there are so many people... Um, you know, like I was doing the math and I was just like, if I were still undocumented now, like even with the passing of a clean dream act, like, at the, like I wouldn't be, I wouldn't qualify nope. for it anymore. That's true. Right. Mm -hmm. That's <laughs> and like, true. and I try to talk 
people about that, you know, and it's like, I can be really frustrated. That certainly feels hopeless. But then I look at them and I say, but I'm having this conversation with you right now. Right. right? Like this is really different from, from like, you know, many years ago when I would just be like weeping into like the, the LA times. Right. And no one, no one would know like what was bothering me that day. And, you know, of course, like, you know, the personal aspect of course is very powerful. And in today's day, you're able to um, have dialogue. Now, I want to go back to what you were saying about, um, you know, someone using illegal, someone like, you know, defending and saying, no, it's in documents, etc. Can you talk to me about what you've seen either, I guess, the campus, campuses you visited recently or just in general? Um, what is the rhetoric like and how it's leading to hate crimes happening, whether it's verbal, whether it's Snapchat, whether it's physical? Um, what's your what's your take on all that? Uh, in regards to immigration? In regards to, uh, how would I say, the, the amount of heated debate around immigration, but how it's leading to like actual violence and racism. Oh, this is this is a very big question. Um, I'm trying to think about it in, in, at a campus level because I have had it. I have, um, you know, because I've been invited to to do like various readings. Like I've been on different campuses, right? Mm-hmm. Like I've been on campuses um, uh, located in sanctuary cities, sure. right? And and um, the level of conversation that I'm able to have both with students and administrators at those campuses are very different from campuses where, you know, uh, someone kind of tells me off the record, like it's a very big deal that, that you're, that you're here right now. <laughs> um, and hopefully like the visit goes well. Um, you know, it, this is, this is a really, really well, let, tough, let me, let me, question. let me preface it by saying, you know, I think a couple of years ago I saw like, it was a big deal. Some some fraternity had posted on Snapchat some pretty racist stuff, um, and I think that was a big controversy. So as far as like Oklahoma, like it's the first thing my mind goes to when thinking about this. <laughs> Snapchat. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I think I know what you're talking about. You're talking. Are you talking about? Because it's happened, I believe, more than once. Um, right. uh, even before I got there, but the kinds of Snapchats that. Um, that brings the university to shame always right. after Martin mm-hmm. Luther King Jr. Day. Maybe, yes. I think so. I think we're talking yes. about that. Um, I mean, I, I guess, like, you know, overall, I'm just kind of asking, like, what your take is, you know, do you think... I don't know. Like, do you think the national dialogue is having a negative impact on campus dialogue? I would like to say no, because again, I think um, I think it's useful for people to have the vocabulary to talk about things. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, these are questions that I am always thinking about, especially now that the book has been out. I mean, the book hasn't been out for very long, mm-hmm. and um, I thought very long and hard about what it might be like and what how I felt about the f- being very out invisible um as someone who grew up and documented and who is writing about that particular experience and not as someone who 
you know, it's like that was just a, a part of my life and now that's over and I'm this totally different person. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like I think about it every time I start teaching a brand new class with brand new students mm. um, who are now aware perhaps of of immigration because of this national conversation. They're watching these different sides fighting and I'm a professor. <laughs> I'm the right. professor who they just have to Google me once, right? Or even just look right. at my faculty page to know things about me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, maybe things would have been, maybe if no one were, was talking about immigration that they would have a very different relation. I mean, I don't, I'm not entirely sure how different things would be. Mm-hmm. Um, students will talk to me about like my experiences which is which is a little odd um i don't feel like i've ever i've yet to encounter a student who has been um standoffish or rude or disrespectful in ways that like I can't quite pinpoint on any one thing, but you know, you know, sometimes you just right. get an inkling mm-hmm. that this person's not talking to you for, it's so far my experience hasn't been like that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I started a brand new university and I moved to a brand new uh, town right before the book or like right around mm-hmm. the time that the book came out. So I was really, really nervous right. um, because it wasn't like, I was already living in a place and surrounded by people who knew me outside, who knew me as they, they knew me minus the, um, learning about like my, my status growing up. Mm -hmm. Right. So it was not like they, they can think to themselves like, Oh, this is someone who I already know and who I really like. And now I'm learning this other thing about her and now having to wrestle with, uh, the political and the, the human Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I was just moving to a brand new place, starting a new job, um, meeting a whole bunch of new students all at the same exact time that, you know, that that I was slowly um, or that the book was slowly bu- uh, building momentum. I have not felt like any kind of, um, I guess, shift in the way that people interact with me. Mm-hmm. Uh, as I mentioned, you know, like I had a student, uh, a student in a high school in Oklahoma Right. Like in a part of Oklahoma that I haven't visited, Mm -hmm. um, who had read my work. Right. Right. Um, maybe I kind of foolishly believe in the power of like language and the power of these kinds of stories to reach people. Um, you know, like I've, like I've had students who have revealed to me, uh, you know, I keep, I, I try always to keep like a very straight face. Um, mm-hmm. you know, I, like, I don't talk about myself and I don't talk about in my book or I don't talk about like my life outside uh, or inside like my creative writing class. I'm, Cause I really want them to be able to explore their own stories and not feel like they have to try to write a particular way, right. right to like, like get an A in to class. compete kind of. Yeah. Yeah. You know, but like after the election, you know, I had, um, I, I, I had class, <laughs> Right after the election mm-hmm. and I didn't cancel class. I showed up and I, I was very open with the students. And I said, you know, like we just had, um, we just had an election. I know that, um, there are a number of like feelings going on around, whether it's in this classroom outside of this classroom, but certainly at like the national stage as part of the net today's, like this morning's national conversation. Mm-hmm. I said, you know, I asked them very directly, like, how would you all like to handle today? Um, we can, I can, go through the lesson just as planned. Um, we can divide up the time so we can, we can talk about the readings, but first we can, um, do short writing, right. Allow you to write and the students over, right. Like these students, these brand new, like freshmen 
at a school in Oklahoma asked to write. Mm-hmm. And they just wrote. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like I, um, you know, and I told them, like, I'm not going to collect this writing, right? Like, if you would like a prompt, right? Like, if you're not feeling like you want to write about anything, if you want a prompt, I'll give you a prompt. Otherwise, you just write, um, as long as you are writing. And, you know, like, I had students who were in the class who, um, who were writing through tears. Right. Um, and you know, as, as a teacher, it was just like, and this is why I don't make any assumptions about my students. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, for whatever reason, there's something about today that is, um, that, that maybe feels overwhelming, you know, Mm -hmm. and I, I've had, I've had some students, you know, who will talk to me about voting for Trump Mm -hmm. and like, they will appear like in, in, in my classes, like semester to semester. And it's just like, Hmm, do you know about me? Like, right. have you made an exception for me? Or mm-hmm. like, is this part of just, is this just part of your education, you know, where mm-hmm. you slowly start to realize, and I will say that that's the same thing for me. And I think for a lot of people, you know, like it very slowly, sometimes like you realize like how, how law is made mm-hmm. <laughs> and what exactly it is that politicians do and how much like it dips into the lives of the people around you. Right. Um, yeah, like this is a really, this maybe in like five years, I will have a better way of like answering this question no, because I mean, I'm, ki- I'm still kind of like learning about it because sure. I'm learning about like what it's like to be someone who is, um, who is vocal, like even when it is difficult for me to be vocal, mm-hmm. um, I still do it because I feel like it's necessary. Um, and if anything, like I really want people to continue to attach um, like human beings to these larger narratives and these larger discourses and mm-hmm. these larger like national conversations, right? Um, I think it's important for um, like, for someone like me, meaning someone who's coming from the Philippines, right, coming mm-hmm. from Asia, um, to talk about these experiences, right, to further and always be complicating um, how it is that people want to simplify, um, you know, issues of immigration and the lives of immigrants. Um, you well, know, I'm still learning. It's like to be like mm-hmm. this visible in the world, in contact with with people, right? Like. Um, well, definitely, I, I do want to ask, like, at this point, and here's where we're kind of, like, um, getting to the very final question. Um, because, you know, you're going on with a positive message, uh, I do want to ask this. Um, because at the end of every interview, I ask, you know, if you had one message um, either to people who are in a tough situation or going through tough times who are, you know, just dealing with the mass effects of, like, the shifting national policy, what message would you send to them? A message of positivity or... yeah yeah i'm trying to think now like if i can reach back through time and mm-hmm. talk to talk to you know that high school version of me right who was you know just really really devastated um i'm trying to think of something that doesn't sounds so cliche right and that's something that i can actually believe in right because Mm -hmm. i don't know if if someone had told me don't worry it gets better i would never have believed them right right? and i also feel like that that's like a really strange thing to say when we're talking about law right Mm -hmm. because other people have to like 
make these laws and other people have to vote on them, right? And if you are not someone who can vote, right, then certainly it feels like you don't have a voice. Of course, of course. Um, I mean, certainly what, what ended up, what really kind of saved me, I think, um, was writing, mm-hmm. right? And reading and writing. Um, and I remember being really, really frustrated at not seeing um, in the works that I'd been taught in school, like, and, and continued to be taught, like, even through college, being really frustrated um, that I didn't have models um, for what it was that I wanted to do, right? Like, very clear models, right? Like, anytime I wanted to... Um, like read about like the stories of immigrants, the lives of immigrants, right? A lot of it came from reading like memoir, reading um, the newspaper, right? Like I hadn't yet, um, I wasn't able to like find like the collection of poems that in some way I felt like my work was in direct conversation with. Mm-hmm. Um, so then I just continued to just like surround myself with the books and the authors um, who, who just, we're always writing about these kinds of like difficult situations. Like what does it mean to, um, to not have like a clear path set in front of you? Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, like it was always coming back to, and I know this isn't necessarily the same for everybody. Um, but it was always coming back to like being part of this conversation with, um, and being in dialogue with, um, with writers and with literature, right? Mm-hmm. Because it demands that you, um, that you listen to other people's stories, but it also asks you to contribute a story, mm-hmm. right? To contribute a narrative, to contribute a poem. Um, and that to me was, was, you know, it really just changed my life, mm-hmm. right? Um, I had thought for a time, like maybe I, I should go into like immigration law, right? Mm-hmm. Like if I really, really want to help, um, maybe I should just like learn learn law right it's like mm-hmm. i was good at school so i was like okay <laughs> right like I, I i like i wanted to to do something that felt like um was very much like a part of what it was that i was already doing um but then like i felt like i had a story that needed to be told mm-hmm. right um and like right now like and i talk um with the other like undocu poets about this about how like we are building we're building like our like foundational literature, right? Mm -hmm. Like these poems and these like uh, various like narratives are now starting to come out, right? Like, like I always keep a list of it. It's just like one of these days I'm going to teach a class and I can teach an entire class just on like undocumented immigrant, Mm -hmm. like lit. That should be interesting. That's awesome. Right. That to me is huge, you know? And it's just like, if I can just keep getting people to like contribute their stories into again, like further complicate Mm -hmm. this narrative that needs to be complicated, right? Because it it absolutely is. And if we don't know that it's complicated, then we won't have laws that address how complicated all of this is. Mm -hmm. Um, You know? And so it's like, if I want to like reach through to like that version of me or like reach through to someone else who is feeling, um, uh, like completely hopeless, just watching, like watching uh, bureaucracy and watching like lawmakers and politicians argue with each other. It's just like write your story, like read the works that are coming out right now, because mm-hmm. out like that is going on at a national stage. But then there are all these writers, there are all these like artists, there are all these like um, activists who are producing like work and producing art Mm -hmm. in spite of all of that 
right? right? Um, and that maybe like we're not seeing it because it's not being televised, mm-hmm. right? In the same exact way, right? So it's like, come find us, right? Like, <laughs> and reach out to us. <laughs> where, where, can, where? What's the easiest way to people to find you, or to find um, um, the Indaki poets? So I, I mean, I have a website, of course, right? JeanineJoseph.com. Um, and you literally just have to type in like undocu poets into, into Google. Um, and the first thing, like I, and I just like brought up my, um, uh, my, <laughs> brought up my internet editor, brought up the webpage just now. I just literally typed in undocu poets, one word mm-hmm. into Google. And the very first thing is undocu poets fellowship. Um, and then there are a few like articles that are written about the Indocu Poets and the Indocu Poets Fellowship. Um, you know, like people reach out to us. Mm-hmm. Um, we respond. Great. And that's <laughs> a big know? one. That's an important thing that you actually respond. That's good. <laughs> we do respond. I mean, we're like people will email me through my website and I respond. Right. Awesome. Like I like we are not unreachable. Great. Um uh, we will respond. <laughs> awesome. Well, with that, Janine, I just want to say thank you so much uh, from the bottom of my heart for speaking to me for about an hour and a half. Um, <laughs> thank you so much for being willing to do this podcast. And um, I think you just have such a great story, resource. Um, the fact that you're an assistant professor, um, it's just very useful. And like you said, you know, complicating the narrative is important. So, you know, I really appreciate um, you fitting into this part of um, the Immigration Mike show. So thank you so much. Thank you. Um, It was great chatting with you. (laughs) 